0: Got your Bibles with you? You can open to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, My name is Terry McNabb, and I am here at this point for six weeks. We're doing a study through Philippians. Uh, I'm not your regular pastor. If you go to church here, you know that. But you can call me Pastor Terry if you want, or hey you, whatever you like. Um... Boy, I just really was looking forward to getting back here this Sunday, getting back into Philippians, and uh, diving back in it this week. You got your Bibles open? This is an amazing little letter by the Apostle Paul to the church at where? It's in the name. Philippi, the letter to the Philippians. Paul is actually writing from a Roman prison cell, and if you didn't didn't catch that reading through it, you you, you would miss that because he just keeps talking about joy and rejoicing. And initially, this is really a thank you letter, a thank you letter for the financial support that they had sent to Paul while he's been in prison. And so we all get that. We get gifts. We write a thank you note, or at least we say we're going to, and then we forget. (laughs) If you want to read a good thank you note, this is it. Even in his hardship. A letter of thanks, but a letter more than that of finding joy in adversity. Now, we're all here today. The truth is, I don't know most of you or your personal lives and your circumstances, but every one of us gets a turn at difficult things in life, every one of us, and when it comes, it can be difficult to find joy in the middle of it, sometimes those seasons of hardship can last a week, a couple of weeks, frankly, sometimes they can last for months or years. They can last so long that it feels like my life will never, ever be the same again. I've had those seasons in my life. And I'll tell you, it's in those seasons that you learn the greatest lessons of who Jesus is. Because you know his strength is your sufficiency as long as you have some strength at least that's how my mind works and it's those times when I've completely run out of strength and I think Lord that's it you probably can't do anything I'm so tired I quit and I learned that the Lord didn't get tired I got tired I got discouraged and he is ready to step in One of the things I often share in my personal testimony is that I grew up in the house of an alcoholic parent. My father was an alcoholic, and I never knew a day that my father didn't drink. I'm the youngest of five. I have an older brother who is now in heaven, died about 15 years ago of cancer. I have three older sisters, and I survived that. One of the only pictures I have of me in childhood is about four years old wearing a dress because my older sisters wanted to play mom. But the thing about being the child of an alcoholic or an addict is they make promises over and over which they never keep. Hey, this weekend we're going to do this. Hey, for Christmas I'll buy you this. Hey, this summer, we're going to go do this. And the thing about alcoholics is they don't keep their promises. So the child of an alcoholic learns to never expect a promise to be kept. And the very definition of hope is the expectation of a good outcome in the future. Hope is not, I hope something will turn out. I hope we can go to the beach this weekend like it may or may not happen. The Bible doesn't use the word hope that way. Hope is the assurance of a good outcome in the future. It is something that is going to happen. And because you have that assurance, you have hope. Regardless of what is happening now... When God makes a promise, He will keep it. And so that gives you hope. Even as an adult, and I'm all of 63 now, all of my adult life, I've had to override this reflex that good things are not for me. I learned it as a child, and it became my superpower to get through difficult times, even though I was pretty sure good things were not going to work out for me. I know that's not true in my mind, but it's still just what I learned. And as I say, literally, I was trained as a child to be hopeless. Maybe some of you have had that experience, and I couldn't really put it into words until about 10 years ago. It was just there in my personality and my, the background of my thinking. And, and some, a book helped me to f- figure this out. And there's a whole list of the residual effects of having an alcoholic parent. But here's what I do know. That there is hope in the Lord. You can say that again. Say it, say it out loud. Amen. Amen. There is hope in the Lord. Hope is not a good feeling that things might work out. Hope is the assurance of a good outcome in the future. I was a teenager in the Jesus movement in the mid-70s in Southern California. I went forward on a Saturday night concert And even though my mother was the opposite, she took me to church. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, I went to church. And I knew the Lord, I would say, as a junior high, high school. But it was in the Jesus movement, in that revival, the beginnings of Calvary Chapel, where I really put my life in the Lord's hands. And I said, Lord, your word says that you have a future and a hope planned for us. Jeremiah 29 11. I said, Lord, if you can do it, I'll trust you. I put the Lord to, to the test, and the Lord did it every step of the way. In spite of my late maturing, frankly, because children of alcoholics mature late in life, I was isolated, alone, didn't develop in a normal way I had career plans actually to go into be a professional musician I lived near near Hollywood but the lord had other plans I didn't plan to be a pastor and yet I was a pastor I pastored Calvary Chapel Portland for 23 years and now what I do in ministry is I I coach and train other pastors other younger pastors in their ministries. And at every test, I have learned that there is hope in the Lord. There is absolutely hope in the Lord. In spite of what I'm experiencing around me, keep my eyes on the Lord and let him work out what he desires to do. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1. There is an, an opening greeting to that letter. And then there is a prayer of thanks, verses 3 through 11. Paul prays for them that they would abound in love, that they would approve or be able to discern and judge what is excellent in life, and that they would be sincere or genuine and without offense in the way that they're living for the Lord. Now, they're in Philippi. Philippi is in Macedonia in the northern part of Greece, and they were actually the first Christian church in Europe. Paul went there on his missionary journeys. You can read in Acts 17, he had plans to go one way, and the Lord redirected him, a man from Macedonia, saying, Come over here you probably read that in Acts 17. And Philippi had become a Roman colony. Which meant that Rome transferred Italians to live there. And make it their home. And then started treating the Philippians as second class citizens. In their own home territory. And so when Paul talks about their suffering and their persecution. That's what he's addressing. Suffering for the Lord. The question is, how can they find joy under their circumstances? The question is, how can you find joy in your circumstances? When I come to speak anywhere, whether it was at the church I pastored, or here, or if I'm at another church somewhere in the country, I feel a tremendous, tremendous weight of responsibility to say something that will affect your lives. I'm not here just to fill in for a Sunday. I'm not here just to give you more Bible knowledge. You can read a book for that. I'm not here just to make you feel good. Hey, that was a amazing. We went to church today. I'm aware that I'm talking to people in difficult, maybe difficult circumstances. And I'm asking the question, how does this apply to your lives today? And I hope you're asking the same question. Now, sometimes we read the Bible and it feels like it it doesn't apply, or we don't know how to apply it to our lives. Paul is going to talking about, talk about being in, in the palace, and the Roman guards and the servants in the palace, and we're thinking, "What do I do with that? Whenever we study the Bible, there's three questions that you ask. How many of you have heard of inductive Bible study? A few of you. It's a, it's a simple form of Bible study. We're always asking three questions. Number one is, what does it say? That's observation. Literally just what are the words on the page? What is, what is the factual information? Secondly, it's uh, interpretation. What does it mean? And what it means is not what you feel it means. Well, I feel it means this. That's very nice but it doesn't mean what you feel it means. And third is interpretation. What must I do with it? What does it say? What does it mean? What must I do? And even if it doesn't directly apply to your situation, you're not like Paul, chained to a Roman guard in the palace in Rome under Caesar Nero. You're thinking, okay, I'm not sure what to do with this. There is a lesson here that directly applies to our lives. And that's my job, is to help us see it and see how that applies to our lives. It's so easy to misinterpret or even misapply scripture. And we've, we've heard people say, hey, I read the Bible and it didn't work for me. And I think I I would just love a little bit more time to talk to that person. The rest of this chapter, verses 12 through 30, will hinge on three words. Three words. And it's those individual words that bring clarity for the next three sections that we're going to read. The first section is verse 12 through 18 and the single word that that really makes it apply to us is the word appointed appointed follow with me i'm going to read those verses paul says but i want you to know brethren that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it is become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become become confident that my chains are are much more bold to speak the Word without fear. Verse fifteen some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from good will. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition. Not sincerely supposing to add to my affliction, add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am, what? Appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in in this I rejoice, yes, and will Rejoice! So I understand, I can, any of you can read this and understand what Paul is saying, just the observation. Paul is saying that he's in prison, he's in the palace under Nero, that the imprisonment, rather than hindering the gospel, actually has worked out to further the advancement of the gospel. He wants the Philippians to know that that the servants and the soldiers in the palace have heard the gospel and many have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. Isn't that amazing? That now, because the Christians in Rome have seen Paul's boldness, now it's giving them more confidence to also share the gospel in Rome. All of this is, more, is the advancement ...and reasons to rejoice, even though Paul is chained to a palace guard. Now, even to add to that, we remember that Paul not only wrote Philippians... ...he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon during this term. And we all benefit from reading those letters. Now, the question is, what am I supposed to do with these passages, with these scriptures... He says, the gospel has been furthered by my imprisonment. How does that apply to me? How does it apply to you? The word is appointed. Paul is saying, I am doing this because I was what? Appoint. That's not a trick question. It's because I was appointed for this. That's your word of, of application. Every one of you is appointed To something for the Lord. Am I supposed to go run off to another country and suffer for the Lord in chains? No, that's not what he's supposed to be saying. And frankly, many young, well-meaning, zealous preachers would say that. You need to go out there and suffer for the Lord. And once I was a young, well-intentioned, zealous pastor. The key is not to go imitate other people, but to discover... And to do the one thing you were appointed to do. And frankly, that has gotten me through my life of trusting the Lord. From being a teenager until now. Is to say, Lord, I have no idea what's out there in the world for me. But if you have something for me to do, that's what I want to find out and do. And outside of that... There is no sense of purpose and peace in this world. Paul was actually appointed to go out into the world and defend the gospel. He was appointed even to stand before rulers in the defense of the gospel. When Paul was on his way to persecute Christians in Acts chapter 9... You know, in his conversion, he was blinded by the Lord, fell to the ground, and the Lord brought a man named Ananias to speak to Paul. Ananias was to say to Paul that he, Paul, Saul at the time, is a chosen vessel of mine. Get that. The very man that is out to persecute Christians, Jesus said, I've chosen him now I don't know about you but that messes with my theology because you see I would like to think the Lord chose me because I'm so good and if you were to get to know me you'd probably say Terry you're amazing wouldn't you right right just by my appearance I've put together this outfit I look pretty I would like to be taller sorry five nines all I got But here is this man who is the very man that the Christians are afraid of if you anything you do today avoid Saul Saul the Pharisee and yet the Lord says in his grace I've chosen him I he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before gentiles kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's Acts 9, 15, 16. So Paul could literally say, I'm suffering. I'm suffering in the palace of Nero, a ruler, a king. And the Lord told me that this is exactly what I would be doing. And so don't, don't feel bad for me. However I got here, I got here. And the Lord has worked the circumstances of Paul's life to fulfill his calling. Paul could say, I was appointed to this. And he could say that God was using him to further the gospel. Look again at verse 12 in your Bibles. Philippians 1, 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. A couple of words there, I just want you to see. The things which happened to me actually means the things which have dominated me, the things which have ruled over me, his suffering, the arrests, the chains. The palace guard. But the word furtherance means to cut before. It would be like a bulldozer going out and clearing trees to make way for a new road. So rather than seeing Paul suffering in Nero's palace as a roadblock, Paul is saying, no, that's not it. The Lord has sent me into new territory like a like a dozer to clear a way to clear a road and to make greater advances of the gospel and that's exactly what's happened soldiers servants believers around rome are trusting in the lord this is advancement of the gospel our perspective about the christian life is completely different from how is this going to make me more comfortable today You know, all of my prayers are about me being more comfortable. I'll just tell you that secret. Maybe you didn't know that. I would like to be more comfortable today. More comfortable than yesterday. And yet we learn that is not the highest priority in life. Of course the Lord cares for your needs. And provides for you. But in those times that things dominate you, rule over you. He's still working through you to make advancements. Verse 12 could read, the things which dominated me have turned out to cut a new path for the gospel. Somebody has to do it, and Paul's the kind of guy that could do it. The secret of doing, now here's the application the secret of finding joy in adversity is finding and doing the one thing you were appointed to do. Frankly, ministry is hard. Pastoring a church is hard. Caring for people, dealing with people's lives, and the challenges and ups and downs of leading a church. And when I was a brand new pastor at 35, I thought, Lord, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to trust you, and I'm just going to just teach the Bible and love the people, and our church is not going to have those challenges that other churches have. Oh, to be young and naive. And two weeks later, <laughs> now within a few years, I, I really hit the wall, and I thought, why, why am I doing this? And the challenges in life, whatever you're appointed to do, the challenges will remove any motivation to do it except as unto the Lord. Lord, if you ask me to do this, I'll do this. There's really no other reason to cut new paths, to endure things that rule over us, And frankly, in the area that God has called you, it's worth it. Because outside of serving the Lord, where is there any peace and purpose? There's not. There's pleasure. Oh, there's lots of pleasure out in the world. But after you get through that season, those years, and the emptiness that sets in, you realize pleasure is not enough. I need more. What, what, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Ephesians 2.10 has been one of my life verses. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Lord, I just want to know, what is it, the good work you've prepared for me? And would you, as quickly as possible, get me ready for that good work so I can go do it? Amen? Amen. The second section is verses 19 through 26. The second word is magnified. Magnified. Verse 19 For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be what? Say it out loud. Magnified or whatever your translation says, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better... Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is, for, is more needful for you. Verse 25, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. For me, everything of what i'm supposed to do with this in application to my life and to yours hinges on that word magnified because he says whether whether by life or by death i've resolved that christ be magnified that's that's his he's saying his motivating compelling principle that gives him uh this perspective in all of this whether he lives or dies And he knows, he's saying two things. If he lives, he'll continue the work. If he dies, he'll see Jesus face to face. Which one is better? Well, if I stay, it's better for you Philippians. If I go, I'd rather see the Lord. Now, you and I may not have that perspective. Quite clearly, that perspective, that to be done with this life is to see the Lord face to face. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says, 1 John chapter 3. And that if you have that hope, you will purify yourself even as he is pure. To live is an opportunity to continue the work. To die means to see Jesus face to face. You know, not... Not many people have this clarity in their thinking, do they? And frankly, not many Christians have this kind of clarity. I would like it more and more. I think the older we get, or even the more we suffer in life, the more we have this perspective of, of just seeing the Lord, of how temporary this life is. But why was Paul so resolved To make everything about the Lord. That's a question. Was he just crazy zealous? Was he just a religious freak? No, this was a man whose life was a complete mess before he had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Do you know that? This isn't just somebody who became a Christian and said, oh, I think I'll go out and preach the gospel Here is a man whose life was a complete mess. And he knows without the Lord he would be nothing. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 16. Write that down, you can look it up later. Paul said to Timothy, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, And an insolent or violent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul knows he was on his way to really destroy his life as well as destroy the lives of other people. And if not for the Lord intervening him, stopping him, Paul's life would have been over. And the only reason he can say, I am what I am now, is because of the Lord, the grace of the Lord. And you know, when you have that kind of experience with the Lord, you are forever grateful. Have you had that experience? Many years ago, I, when I still lived in Southern California, back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, I owned a haagen ice cream store at the beach, uh, at Laguna Beach specifically. If you've ever been to Laguna Beach, at Main Beach where they play volleyball and basketball on the beach, it's an amazing, beautiful, scenic setting. And my store was right on PCH. I could look out my front window and see the ocean. I wore shorts to... to uh, I almost said shorts to church every day. Shorts to work every day. I ran the store. I had a partner, and he did the books. Um, as long as he let me scoop ice cream and go to the beach every day, I was happy. Um, we'd get into these winter months where no one's coming into the store for ice cream. And I remember this one winter cold day When I think I didn't have a customer hardly all day And this guy comes in He was on a bike trip down the coast He was from England And I had made several missions trips Evangelism trips to England So I enjoyed talking to anybody who was Who was, you know, in my path from England Especially the the north part in West Yorkshire where, Where I would go do outreach and evangelism And we started talking, and nobody was there, and I started sharing about Jesus with him. And I remember he said, I don't know why I should be asked to give honor to Jesus Christ. How egotistical is that of Jesus to say that I should honor him? Have you ever heard anybody say something like that before? How egotistical is God that we have to praise him? Occasionally, you hear atheists say things like that. I said, you know, I understand that. You feel this obligation, this requirement to praise a God that you don't even know. I said, but what if you go out of this store, you go on your bike trip, and you have an accident. Your bike is unrideable, you break your leg, and when I close up the store, I, I come across you and I find you on my way home. I have a van so I said what if I put your bike in my van put you, care lift you up put you in my van I take you to the emergency room they take care of you I wait for you I take you to my house while you recover I get your bike fixed up and you completely recover and get back on the road again and I said are you going to be grateful or not he said, I see your point. After all the Lord has done for me, isn't it right for him to expect me to give him credit for what, I, what he has done in my life? Of course. It's, it's praise, it's thanks that is due his name for all that he has done for us. Amen. Magnified. Whatever you're doing in life, whatever is dominating you, whether whatever the circumstance is, there must be that resolve that in your life you get through it in a way that honors the Lord. Whatever blessing, whatever fruit, comes out of service for the Lord. It is by the Lord and he gets thanks for it. The third section in our study today verses 27 through 30. The third word is worthy. Third word is worthy. And this is especially the section where Paul is making application. He says, "Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether i come and see you or am absent i may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation and that from God for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me here's what Paul wants to draw from everything he is saying about him suffering for the Lord in service let your conduct Be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The key word, the the two words, conduct and worthy. What's interesting is that the word conduct gives us a word that that would be translated into the English words politic or political. Political. Right now, we're in the middle of political mess, aren't we? Whether it's social injustice, chaos in Washington, how do we as Christians respond to what's going on? Whether it's uh, you name it, I don't want to say anything and get you mad at me. All the stuff with COVID and masks and vaccines, all of the opinions that we have as Christians. All of our reactions to all these things that are not just health concerns, they become these these emotion-filled political issues. Stand fast in one spirit. That's hard to do when I'm right and you're wrong. Don't say amen. Amen. stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together what for a right policy on vaccines for the correct position on masking for the faith of the gospel our highest priority is the gospel and we can disagree on things if it's not the things that are flying around now it's something else this is not just today's issues all this stuff is going to pass and there's plenty of things for us to disagree about that's why we have so many churches I want to associate with people who are right like me the more mature you become as a Christian, you become more and more capable of having fellowship with people who disagree with you. And in fact, the very sign that you are a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ is your ability to love all other disciples. Not just the ones in my circle. Not just the ones at my church. But if they have a different brand, a different name, they do worship the wrong way. Spiritual maturity brings the capacity to love others in the family of God. And we can disagree and have different views. But there still is that compelling love for for people, period. For people. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Conduct is politic. Let your politic, which also is your citizenship... And worthy means what it is. Worthy is your worth. Let the way you live, your politics, have a worth that is up to the, the gift of eternal life that Christ has given to you. Does your manner of life, your politics, your citizenship reflect Jesus or something else? I don't know about you, but those are the kind of little gems that I look for in the Bible that bring such clarity. You know, people say, well, po- there's no politics in the Bible. The, the word is right there. Because of our politic, because of our priority, to live a life worthy of the gospel, we are obligated to love one another in spite of different opinions. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul there again is saying, My eyes are on the Lord. I'm a citizen of heaven. Now, I get that in this world. So much in the news right now of American citizens in Afghanistan. We need to get them out of there. The priority is they are American citizens, so they need to get out of there. And they feel a sense of looking to their country, America, because of their citizenship. They don't want to stay there. They've been living there for a long time, doing whatever work, but the whole time, their perspective is that of being American citizens. That is hard for us to get as Christians living in America, that our citizenship is in heaven. so does my life reflect that or am I just saying Lord make my life easier bless me bless me and one of the great blessings of sufferings is to shift your perspective on what's important because this life is only temporary the secret of finding joy doing what you're appointed to do Living a life that honors, magnifies the Lord, and living a life that is worthy of the gift of eternal life. Worship team, why don't you come up? Now, let me ask in your life, in your circumstances, do you know what to do with this passage we just studied? Are you facing difficulty? How many of you would just show me your hand? I have some challenge in my life I'm dealing with. Okay, that's, that's most of you. And the rest of you will get a turn. Just wait a couple of weeks. One of the challenges is having a right perspective when everything is going well. Because my eyes get back on just my plans, my comforts, But when your life is going well, remember you are the encouragement for somebody else who is in the middle of something difficult. Is it possible that whatever might be dominating you, the Lord is using to make advancements for His purposes in your life or the people around you? You're growing, you're maturing. You're making right decisions about what's important for your family.